Welcome to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. As the coronavirus continues to spread, we look at some of the impacts on our community. The last two weeks have seen schools close, restaurants forced to do takeout only, and a massive shift to working from home, including all of us here at The Buzz. This week and for the foreseeable future, we're doing our interviews from home using online tools. All of these efforts at what's called social distancing are intended to help slow the spread of coronavirus so that the number of people who get sick doesn't exceed the capacity of our healthcare system. Hopefully, our efforts will save lives. But it's also drastically changing our everyday patterns, and no one knows for how long. Michael Warraby leads the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at the University of Arizona. He studies the origin and control of viruses, including the 1918 Spanish flu, the last major pandemic to hit the U.S. This outbreak is... uh shaping up to have the potential to look a lot more like that pandemic than I was hoping uh, a a couple months ago. Um, We're in a really serious situation. And one of the things that I think people maybe don't quite appreciate is how much the impact of this is going to be shaped by our response to it. The 1918 Spanish flu had a case fatality rate of something like... uh, one to 2%. This virus has a case fatality rate that's ranging from less than 1% in countries like South Korea that have done a really good job of getting ahead of it and not allowing it to penetrate through the whole population to closer to 10% in Italy. Uh, And unfortunately right now, the US is on track to look a lot more like Italy than South Korea and we need to change that. We've heard, oh, once it gets warm, this virus goes away. Is that a realistic type of expectation when it comes to viruses? I think that's a a really bad thing to be banking on uh, in Tucson. There's no really good evidence that uh, warm weather is going to shut this down. And new viruses like this, where you have no uh, herd immunity, so widespread immunity in in the population, they're able to to race through um, even when environmental conditions aren't ideal. And all you have to do is think about the the recent flu seasons in um, Arizona. They've stretched into June in some cases. Uh, So if this virus can stretch into June and we don't do anything to to really slow it down, um, we're going to be, we're we're going to experience a, a total collapse of our healthcare system. When it comes to viruses, they do mutate. Uh, is that a problem? Are mutations going to be a problem with COVID-19? So this is sort of my area of uh, expertise. I, I sequence the genomes of, of these sorts of viruses and then use their mutations to understand when they emerged in the human population, where they're spreading, how they're spreading, and that kind of thing. And this virus, like all RNA viruses, which are very sloppy when they replicate their uh, genetic material, uh, they are accumulating mutations uh, at a pretty constant rate. Right now, there's no indication that any of those mutations are 
functionally important in terms of, you know, making some of the virus uh, lineages more deadly than others, that kind of thing. No indication of that. And also still no indication uh, of them being immunologically important. This is still a very new virus uh, and, and we're in the sweet spot where a vaccine would be expected to protect against all the lineages on the planet still. So when we all emerge from social distancing, what happens? Do the numbers just come back or will we be ahead of the virus at that point? It all depends on how prepared we are. So if, if we take aggressive social distancing methods for time to suppress the virus and get ourselves in a position where we can test very widely um, people who uh, have it, people who might have it because they've been in contact with, uh, with other cases, and even people in the community who um, are asymptomatic, then this has worked in places like South Korea. They have uh, controlled the virus. They're no longer having to impose harsh uh, social distancing uh, and, and uh, economic uh, measures. Uh, and so we could do that here, but it's going to take a lot of work. Uh, and we need, again, to take those me measures to buy ourselves the time to get the thousands of, of, of test kits uh, and the other supply chain issues that go along with that, the swabs and, uh, and so forth. Um, and we need to do that anyways, just, just for medical personnel to have N95 masks and these sorts of really basic things that we still don't have uh, enough of. It doesn't have to be forever. This is, this is the important point, that if we're aggressive up front, for a matter of weeks, we can buy ourselves time to get in the position that we need to be to then chase down uh, cases of this virus before they can spread to lots of other people and start using widespread testing uh, and contact tracing to keep the number of people that are getting this from growing. That was Dr. Michael Warraby, head of the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at the University of Arizona. So what does it feel like to get coronavirus? We talked with someone who recently found out. University of Arizona student Lauren Salgado shared some of her experience with COVID-19. My throat was hurting first, and then I got a really, really bad headache, and that headache did not leave for days. And then the fever just was constant, and then my stomach was really bad. Everything that you could imagine that wasn't feeling good wasn't feeling good. I had body aches. It just hit really fast. After being tested for the flu, she said her doctor decided to test her for COVID-19 because she also has asthma and is at higher risk. On day four of her illness, she got the call that she was positive. Lauren stayed at home for her treatment, following doctors' orders to use over-the-counter medications and cold showers and ice packs to help keep her fever down. And she says after her experience, she has a message for people. It's very important for people to know that this is real. When I had told some of my friends um, that I tested positive for the coronavirus, I was hit back with replies like, oh my goodness, it's real? that this is a real thing and that like really shocked me because 
I was already very scared. I was I was taking this very seriously. And I think there's people out there that do, don't think this is a real thing, that it's not going to affect them. Definitely stay home because you can still be a carrier. It takes two weeks of incubation. And you may not even get symptoms until like a very long time from when you first get the coronavirus. So I really advise people to take this extremely seriously. Lauren says the doctors told her that she has to stay quarantined for seven days after she stopped showing symptoms. That's to ensure she's protecting her dad, who she lives with. She guesses she'll be home for about a month. Like universities across the country, the University of Arizona made the decision to move all classes online for the remainder of the semester. Commencement has been canceled. The Buzz's production assistant, Vanessa Ontiveros, shares how some UA students feel about the change. My name is Vanessa Ontiveros, and I'm a third-year student at the University of Arizona. I thought that by now I'd be knee-deep in the projects that tend to pile up in the second half of the semester. But now, that's all out the window. I'm recording this in a closet at my parents' house in Los Angeles where I really can't leave unless I'm going to get food or medicine. The whole state is on lockdown because of the coronavirus. And I can't go back to campus, so now all of my classes are online, which is not what I signed up for at the beginning of the semester. In the past two weeks, professors have been scrambling to move classes online, which means students have been scrambling to catch up with all the changes. It doesn't help that there's no real consensus about how news is delivered to students. I have professors who use email, some who use D2L, some who use both, and even one who is thinking of setting up a Facebook group for the class. A lot of UA students are facing these academic challenges. Last week, Maritza Almanza, a UA sophomore, started a petition to have the university give students the option to have their classes graded on a pass-fail system. The university has since announced it would implement such a system. Almanza said that despite receiving some criticism for the petition, she was surprised at the amount of support it received. The number of signatures equaled about 20% of the UA student population. I remember specifically there were 5,000 signatures already under eight hours. Um, there were uh, students of color who like um, DM'd the Instagram and were DMing me like with praise and love, appreciation, and that was great. On top of school-related worries, students also have a lot of the same worries as everyone else right now. Students work many of them in the restaurant and bar industries, so a lot of students do not know when they will get their next paycheck. The UA has announced partial refunds or credit for parking passes and housing, which may provide some relief. Students pay rent, and a lot of them don't know if they'll be able to make that this month. Students eat, and now may face food insecurity. Students socialize, and now face isolation. Almanza says those feelings of isolation can be compounded for students like her, who are part of several marginalized communities. Not being able to physically see people in like my respective communities is um, definitely um, wearing down on me. Like not getting to talk to all like all of my friends who are like POC or queer or trans like me. That's definitely like wearing down on me. It makes me appreciate the internet a little bit more and the way it's been able to connect people, which is nice. Students are finding new ways to support each other during this time. Riley Conklin is co-founder of the Queers United Coalition, an advocacy group made up of LGBTQ plus students at UA. Even though students can't meet on campus anymore, Conklin and other QUC members are coming up with new ways of supporting students and continuing their advocacy, like sharing resources on social media. Yeah, um, so I definitely want to organize like some Zoom meetings or like some virtual hangouts 
we can still definitely do things like letter writing um, when we are allowed to like organize like together in person we already have like a foundation. And students, just like everyone else, just want things to go back to normal. The way I've been thinking about it is like this. Before spring break, I was like a hamster on a wheel. Once that thing starts spinning, it's hard to stop. Yes, the wheel was spinning really fast and I was tired, but at least it kept me going. And now, that routine and my wheel are gone. I think I'm supposed to run laps around my cage, but honestly I'm not sure and I don't want to run as much because there isn't a clear path set before me. And if any of this is inaccurate to hamsters, I do apologize. I don't have a hamster, just a cat who really enjoys yelling while I'm on Zoom calls. For The Buzz, I'm Vanessa Ontiveros. As university students shift to online learning, many parents are stuck at home trying to keep their kids active and engaged while also keeping the household running during school closures. For now, the governor and state superintendent of public instruction have said schools will remain closed through April 10th. The Buzz producer, Ariana Broch, has talked with Michael Sulkowski, an associate professor in the school psychology program at the University of Arizona, about ways parents can cope with this new normal. Parents are going to be stressed. They're going to be overwhelmed. Children are going to be confused. They're not going to know necessarily how to respond. Um, so it's important, I think, just to have you know that period of, of, of just inquiry and try and see what, what have you heard about this from your friends or what have you seen on TV to kind of see where to go from there. Are there any tips you have for talking to kids about the closure of schools, the cancellation of all their intramural or outside of school activities, um, even the cancellation of playdates, basically? I think the important thing is, is to let children know that this is a temporary thing and we will return to normalcy at some point in the future. Um, nobody knows exactly when that's going to be, but there will be playdates, there will be birthday parties, there will be intramural sports, there will be after-school activities and clubs and all that stuff in the future. So what kinds of activities would you recommend parents employ to help their kids continue learning and developing, even if it's not in the sort of strict curriculum we might think of in a schoolroom? I think it's important for parents not to try and be an expert teacher and to be a parent first, to really think about, okay, what, what really constitutes learning? And learning doesn't necessarily mean throwing materials at students or uh, even allocating a lot of time to specific tasks. It's about making sure that the student, the child, your child, now your student, uh, feels comfortable accessing the materials, the curricula, and being able to ask you questions in the way that they might ask a teacher. You know, you're kind of in a dual role relationship there. You're wearing two, two hats concomitantly. Uh, that's a challenge. And you don't conform to the typical school day. And, and that's okay. Um, home is different. You know, instruction doesn't have to work around the clock in the same way. Use available resources that kind of tap into intrinsic interests to kind of access uh, the learning points that, that you would really want um, established. One thing I think we hear a lot about is play-based learning. So I'm sort of thinking of things like involving your kids in cooking, maybe, or helping with chores, or um, other things that are just happening around the house that maybe you normally don't involve them in as a way to keep them busy and also do some sort of less traditional learning. Yeah, absolutely. So modeling and active engagement and repetition. I mean, this is a fantastic opportunity to teach a lot of those life skills that you're not going to get in a classroom. So, you know, being, let's say you have an adolescent and dad's outside working on the car. Great learning opportunity right there. Or baking in the kitchen or 
uh, learning, you know, how to do some type of skill or task that maybe one of the parents has. Maybe it's even, you know, a musical instrument of some kind or, you know, an art craft. Any other thoughts for ways parents can support themselves right now or maybe just cut themselves a little bit of a break? Yeah, absolutely. I think the important thing is for parents to manage self-care. You know, we talk about that all the time. And then when it comes around to doing it ourselves, we're like, I don't have time for that. But you have to make time for it. You teach the most important things in life to your children, but you're not a classroom teacher, or maybe some are, but very few. So, you know, keep that in mind. We're really focusing on getting through this um, uncertain period in really world history and making sure that your child continues to learn and to grow in ways that, that nourish his or her future. That was Michael Solkowski, an associate professor in the school psychology program at the University of Arizona. For the last week, restaurants and bars throughout Pima County have been figuring out how to change their operations to respond to orders to limit food service to takeout or delivery only. Last week, Jake Steinberg talked to a few places on 4th Avenue about the challenges they're facing. Martin Fonte stands at the entrance to his restaurant, which he's replaced with an extremely red takeout window. He's offering curbside pickup and delivery, And he says that's not all he's doing. Somebody can ask me for a catering for their house. I can make you, you know, a batch of beans, whatever you want to do. I'm ready for negotiation at this point. Fontes, like every other restaurant, bar, and business owner in Tucson, is figuring out how to make it through the coming weeks. It's devastating. There's no sugarcoating it. Andy Motskin is the owner of Caruso's Italian. She says many businesses were counting on St. Patrick's Day and the 4th Avenue Street Fair to bank money for the summer slowdown. This week was supposed to be the big, one of the biggest weeks of the year. And it's turned out to be probably the worst and most devastating week of not just this year, but probably the decade. There is currently no evidence of COVID-19 transmission through food. That's according to the Centers for Disease Control and the Food and Drug Administration. Food delivery apps Grubhub and Postmates recently introduced contact-free delivery where they'll leave orders at your door. The virus can temporarily survive on surfaces, but you can reduce your risk by following CDC guidelines, like discarding packaging and then washing your hands for 20 seconds. Matskin says supporting local businesses through pickup and delivery is the only way to make sure they'll make it through the virus. And it supports their workers, too. The loss of business means she's only able to give shifts to one quarter of her employees. She says she's hoping the restrictions won't last longer than the current two weeks. But Martin Fontes of Martin's Comida Chingona says he's preparing for it to go much longer. What I'm going to do, I'm going to make as much noise on the curbside as possible. I'm going to put signs. I'm going to let people know as much as I can. And I'm damned if I'm going to let this restaurant fall after 19 years. Bars and breweries are also trying to find ways to keep sales up while they can't serve customers in normal ways. While many breweries are switching to takeout cans, bottles, and growlers only, I talked with hop shop owner Jesse Mance about their decision to close after about a week of offering the takeout service due to coronavirus concerns. You know, it was it was basically just feeling like... Uh... We weren't doing our part to keep people at home. Uh, we felt like all of the the news we're hearing is that we really do have to hunker down, and um, if we can if we can stay 
contribute less to people moving, then we would feel good about it. And uh, it was a very, obviously a difficult decision. And, and my co-owner, Dave, and I were really kind of heartbroken for our staff because this is not something we want to do to them. So we held a staff meeting and, um, you know, we all sat 10 feet apart and we talked about everything. We talked about how they were feeling, if they felt safe, if they felt listened to, if they felt uh, like they were putting themselves at risk. We asked them what members of the community were saying. Um, and we also asked them um, if they would be okay financially and otherwise, if we did shut down, several of them spoke up and said we would be okay. And, and that we feel weird being here and we, we don't want to contribute to any sort of uh, spread. And so it was kind of a beautiful moment and a beautiful uh, staff meeting, to be honest. How are you all going to handle things like rent and all of that uh, while you're closed? Hopefully not for a long time, but this could go on for a while. We're not sure. <laughs> I'll be honest. We um, we bootstrapped this whole operation. We, we took out quite a few loans at the beginning, and we've happily paid off, I think, three out of four of the loans that we took at the beginning, which is fantastic. Um, but at this point, we uh, if we need to take another loan, we will. Um, we've got some savings and of course being closed will limit our spending a bit. Um, we have not talked to our landlord yet about rent because we just kind of want to wait until that becomes a necessity. What's the trigger that you all have that you say, okay, it's safe to reopen? Uh, that's a good question. And you know, we're all trying to play scientists here. We're all looking at the numbers that are made public and the data that's made public. Um, I guess... What we'd be looking for is a slowing of that curve. Um, you know, if the, if the cases in Pima County and Arizona continue to spike, uh, it's not gonna feel like a good time to reopen. And I know that there's a difference between um, actual viral contagion and um, positive tests because now we're getting these tests in and so the numbers will go up, but we'd like to see it flatten before we open. That was Jesse Mance, a co-owner of the Tucson Hop Shop. Roughly one in eight Arizona residents are immigrants. More than 25,000 are recipients of DACA, the Obama-era Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program. The fate of that program still hangs in the balance at the U.S. Supreme Court, but the pandemic has Arizona's DACA and mixed immigration status families wondering what safety net exists for them. Jose Patino is the Education and Advocacy Director at Aliento, a Phoenix nonprofit that supports DACA, undocumented, and mixed-status families in Arizona. He's also a DACA recipient. Elisa Resnick spoke with Patino about how that community is feeling about coronavirus. What are some of the biggest barriers right now that are facing DACA recipients, undocumented people, and mixed-status families in Arizona? Well, the current act of recipients is if you're DACA aspiring, um, sending and getting that process through through USCIS while it's closed. And if it's closed and your DACA expires, you're technically going to be out of a job. So how do you figure our way around that? And then it's for testing. It's for everybody. Is I don't know anybody who has gotten tested who's a DACA recipient or undocumented. So it's like, how do you get access to that system? Because it's not set up for us. What are some of the things that are preventing them from doing that? One of them is it is the fear, even though ICE have said that they were not going to 
actively try to deport or arrest individuals or trying to get tested, uh, there is still that fear. Um, so people are not going to say go. The second thing is like, if you don't have insurance, how expensive it's going to be. And the third thing is even like we have seen that even those who are citizens that have insurance, <laughs> it is not like they have tests for them. And specifically for DACA recipients, what are some of the things that you're thinking about right now in terms of what comes next? I myself, every day I wake up really early at 6 a.m. and make sure I review the SCOTUS block to make sure they didn't make a, a decision. So I know there's a lot of us who are doing that. And then the other worry is unemployment. If I lost my job because some folks, those who are going to school work in restaurants, right, to supplement their income and they lost a job, can I apply for unemployment insurance? And that's, I know years back we were not eligible for that in the state of Arizona. Uh, and I've been calling the Department of Economic Security to see if we were eligible, but that hasn't been, they don't answer. I think they're jam-packed with all the, all the claims. So it's just a lot of uncertainty. I think the feeling that everybody else has is a little bit, it's just higher just because it's, you're placing this country in this world that's not permanent. So that's to say that as of right now, any stimulus package that comes out or any um, unemployment benefits that could happen as a result of this crisis are not currently affecting DACA recipients or undocumented people in Arizona? Not through the state of Arizona. I, again, through the federal the stimulus package that the Congress passed, I'm asking a couple of, of accountants to review it, whether those who have I-10 numbers would be eligible for it and those who have work permits like myself, like DACA recipients, would be eligible for any of that package. Do you feel like you or your organization has the answers for many of those questions right now? We have them for some, um, and all of them are short-term, but I think we don't have them all. And it feels frustrating to just sometimes just to be like, well, we just don't know, or yeah, there's no help for you. And I think that's tough because you hear the desperation in people's voices. And my hope is that this situation ends sooner rather than later, but I think we're going to struggle um, a lot. And I just think back how the great recession was for us um, at the time I was undocumented. And, and I just remember how tough it was for, for, for the family. Like my siblings lost their home and all of us moved back in together to my parents' house. And at that time you had a lot of raids going on. So you always worry that people would be deported. It's just, it's just tough. I think people are, are having a tough time making difficult decisions because the, typically the U.S. brings a safety. And I don't know if the safety exist as much as they used to before this crisis. The governor's office has said DACA recipients are eligible for unemployment in Arizona. Aliento says they're working with state lawmakers to better understand what's available to immigrant families, but a lot is still unclear. And that's the buzz for this week. We're continuing to cover coronavirus in our community and want to know what questions you have. Please submit your questions about COVID-19 through our website or call and leave us a voicemail at 520-621-5999. That number again, 520-621-5999. We'll have experts answer your questions on an upcoming show. Ariana Brocious is the show's producer and editor. Vanessa Ontiveros is our production assistant. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer. Duncan Moon is the interim news director. Our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.